Game changer. It's typically defined, one of the things I talked about with those kiddos you're in Poetry Pals, it's defined as something or someone so radical, something that does something so significant that it radically alters, it changes maybe what we do. Maybe it changes where we do it or how we do it. Maybe it even changes the why we do what we do. And in some rare cases, some very rare cases, sometimes it's multiples of those. Maybe it's the what, the where, the how, and the why all together. Maybe it's all of those. As we said with those kiddos, maybe it's about sports or technology, innovations, discoveries. Maybe it has something to do with social or legal or religious reform. And as we shared with those kids, the ultimate game changer is King Jesus. The ultimate game changer. And there's nobody that even comes in a close second. Nobody and nothing compares. And so if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Romans 6 or you can just look up at the slide here. And in Romans 6, verses 1 through 6, we read, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Because we've died to sin, so how can we live in it any longer? We were buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may do what? Walk in newness of life. King Jesus changed what we do. King Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. The Word teaches us that apart from faith, everything is its sin. King Jesus changed the what, and we can now walk in newness of life. And isn't that a game changer? Galatians 2.20. Jesus didn't just change the what, he changed the where we do. Galatians 2.20, the first part of that verse reads, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer what? I no longer live. I, me, the old self, the self-worshipping idolater, is no longer alive, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, where? Where is life found? In the body. We got some Sunday school answers out there. In Jesus, that's not wrong, but Galatians 2.20 tells us that life is found in the body. Crucified, I no longer live. There's only one thing that remains. Christ in me. I like to think of the old westerns where there's not enough room in this town for the both of us, pilgrim. Right? There's not enough room in us for the old me and Jesus. But isn't that what we do? Jesus, I want, I want you to come and live with me, but I still want it to be about my stuff and my agenda. And he says, I'm sorry, I can't do that. There's not enough room for the both of us in your heart. It isn't all about personal salvation, despite what we've been taught and programmed and been beaten over the head with for years in church culture, personal salvation 
is not the mountaintop. It's not about personal or private anything. King Jesus didn't just change the what, he changed the where. This newness of life that we experience, where does it go down? In the body. Not this physical building, us, the bride and the body of Christ. And isn't that a game changer? Paul goes on to say in the last part of Galatians 2.20, the life I now live in the body, I live how? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The how is by faith in the Son of God. But if it's no longer about being independent, about private and personal, then why did Paul say, loved me, gave himself for me. See, that's where we dabble and take a superficial approach to Scripture. We ignore the context and we ignore the comprehensive biblical theology, taking the whole thing. And instead, we take bits and pieces that we like and we stitch them together like a theological Frankenstein. If we look at Ephesians 5.25, at the same time that we're looking here, it reads, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, his body and his bride. And what did he do for her? He gave himself for her. Not for Kevin as an individual. Not as an independent freelance Christian contractor, he gave himself for her. The me Paul's referring to is the new me. And where does that life happen? It happens in the body. So if we're going to quote scripture and we're going to say that he died for me and gave himself for me, it's accurate, it's correct, and it's true to the extent that he's talking about the me that's walking in newness of life in the body. we got to get back to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 here, don't we? No longer living, no longer judging, no longer perceiving by our own personal, private, limited, biased, skewed sight, by what seems right in our own eyes, by reason, by our own opinions and preferences. But Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us to lean not on our own understanding. It doesn't mean that we simply go from leaning on our own understanding to trading that in to lean on Jesus. That's not accurate either. See, we don't lean on Jesus to fill in the gaps. Jesus, I got my job and my career all nailed down. I just need some help over here with my finances. I just need a little bit of help over here with my relationship. So if you could just kind of stitch that up. That's good, Jesus. Don't go diving into my whole life. Don't get all up in my business. I just need to lean on you a little. Just kind of fix a couple of little areas of my life, and that's it. Don't overstep your bounds. That's not what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is talking about. 
It's talking about total abandon with all our heart. In all our ways, we do what? Submit to, acknowledge him. Like Noah. Could you imagine living at the time of Noah, maybe being Noah, and God tells you to build this huge boat? Maybe it's in the middle of the summertime. Who knows? I don't know. But he's building this giant boat, and there's not a drop of rain anywhere. Uh, God, I'm going to lean on my own understanding here. How's that boat going to turn out? But isn't that what we do in our own lives? Hey, God, I got it. Yeah, I don't really need the instruction manual. Maybe it's like Abraham sacrificing his own son, his only son. God, that just doesn't seem ethical. You know, you're telling me don't murder, and then you're saying, I want you to sacrifice. You know, God, I'm a little conflicted. Isn't that, you know, isn't that a little bit, uh, yeah, I don't know, God. It seems a little contradictory to me. And then where would we be, right? We wouldn't have a father of faith. We wouldn't have Father Abraham. Maybe it's like David standing before a giant with a sling and a stone. Hey, God, I could really go for a, a grenade launcher here. You know, Goliath, he's, uh, he's kind of got me outweighed here. You know, the UFC, they've got weight classes every 10 or 15 pounds. I mean, this guy's like eight feet tall. I'm just a little kid. Lean not on your own understanding. Maybe it's like King Jesus asking the Father to forgive, forgive the very people who mistreated him, who betrayed him, rejected him, falsely accused him, plotted and planned against him. Finally, they tried to shame him, executing him, Publicly, nailing him, nailing him. Not our idea of nails, more like tent spikes, nailing him to a cross. And in our mouths and in our hearts, what we would do is say, it's not fair. I demand justice. And what King Jesus did, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they're doing. King Jesus changed the how we live by faith 100% in the Son of God who loved us. Indeed, who gave himself for us, members of his bride and his body. Isn't that a game changer? Revelation 5.12 shows us teaches us that King Jesus changed why. He changed the why we do. We see the heavenly hosts in Revelation 5.12 numbering in the thousands, in the tens of thousands, in the hundreds of thousands, shouting in worship and praise to the Lamb. You alone are worthy because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God humanity from every tribe and language and people and nation. As we read that, you might be inclined, 
you might be inclined to look at that and see, because you were slain. And that would lead us to believe that he's worthy because he was slain. And that's not true. The next slide I wanted to emphasize a little bit. You alone are worthy because you, King Jesus, were slain. And with your blood, King Jesus, you purchased for God humanity from every tribe, language, people, and nation. It's a little bit different, isn't it? What makes his incarnation, his death, his sacrifice at the cross, the empty tomb, all game changers, is not just what he did. It's who did the doing. King Jesus. King Jesus changed why we do. And so we cast our crowns at his feet. We abandon unto Yahweh because Christ alone is worthy. And all of that's 100% true, right? All of that is 100% true. And we can know it with 100% certainty, and it all do absolutely nothing. Change absolutely nothing. James wrote, even the demons believe and tremble. The problem is they just won't submit. They just won't allow themselves to be transformed. And so the Apostle Paul lovingly challenged the church in Corinth, and he challenges churches, including us, everywhere throughout time in writing, examine yourselves to see, to test, to prove, determine whether or not Christ Jesus is in you, unless you, church, are found to be counterfeit. Yikes. Anyone here looking forward to that day when we stand before Jesus and he says, I find you to be counterfeit. I find you to be counterfeit. You working in lawlessness away from me. I never knew you. Before I began the message today, I asked you to write down maybe two or three things, the most important expectations you could think of. But before we examine those, let's do something truly radical. Let's examine the word for God's expectations for us. Isaiah, Old Testament, chapter 5, verse 4, probably one of the greatest summaries of God's expectations. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Foreshadowing what? Foreshadowing who? Christ and the cross. Why then, when I, God, not Pastor Kevin, not you, not contemporary church, but God, why then, when I expected a yield of grapes, did it produce worthless ones? Ouch. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. 
And beginning in verse 11, let's look at God's expectations for us. Verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, And it was He, Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastor-teachers. What we find in the reading of God's Word is that there are, in fact, God-ordained servant leaders in the body. Is that radical for anyone? It might not be radical to know that they're there, but do we take it seriously? Do we take it seriously that there are people who Christ himself has appointed as leaders? When we fail to take that seriously, fail to recognize that reality, it equates to what we see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? Rebellion. It equates to what Korah did to Moses in Numbers 16, rebellion. It equates to what Absalom did to his father David in 2 Samuel, rebellion. It equates to what the Pharisees did in the New Testament to King Jesus, rebellion. And how did all those things turn out? It's not about submitting even when we don't understand or agree, but especially when we don't understand or agree. I'm not suggesting we become cattle in a cult of ignorance or lemmings walking off the edge of a cliff because Acts 17 teaches us that what did those Berean Jews do? They received it first, eagerly what Paul was teaching, and then... They studied scripture to see if what he said was true. I'm not talking about turning a blind eye to unethical, illegal, immoral leadership and direct violation, explicit violation of the word. I'm not suggesting or preaching that. But when it boils down to personal opinion about my preferences versus yours, Pastor, is that truly I no longer live? but Christ living in me. So where's the room for opinion and preference? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, with all your heart, submit to him. Maybe, just maybe, God is doing something bigger than you here. Maybe he's doing something bigger than me here. Maybe he's doing something bigger than us here. We can delete the maybe out of every single one of those. God is doing something bigger than all of us in all of this. Remember Job? Afflicted, loss, pain, suffering, and at some point, Job finally cracked. And Job demanded, demanded an audience with God Almighty. And when God finally shows up in Job in this tempest storm... At the end, after multi-chapters of God's response, what does Job do? My bad. God, I'm just going to stand here and shut my face. I'm going to cover it up because surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Is that our attitude within the body and the bride of Christ? Or is it we just want to be heard? 
God expects humility and submission to divinely established authority within the church. And why is that? Well, in verse 12 of Ephesians 4, it goes on to say, to equip the saints for what? A water park? A fun ride? Entertainment? To applaud? Nice job, pastor. It's for the work of ministry. That's why you're here. When we look at passages like the armor of God in Ephesians 6, 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. It's clear from Scripture, or at least it should be, we are in a battle. And if you're not, there's a problem. If you've been in the military or maybe had a family member who was, everybody... Everybody, with maybe some rare exceptions, everybody goes through some sort of basic training. The drill sergeant isn't the one who is being prepared to go into combat. He's been there. He's done that. He's got the scars to show it. What the drill sergeant is doing, his job, his role, his responsibility is what? to equip and prepare the troops for the battle. In the same way, Christ established divinely appointed authorities, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers, battle-hardened veterans, servant leaders within the body to do what? Equip the saints for the work of ministry, not to do it for them. How would basic training go if it were run and led by committee, by the recruits? It would look a lot like Acts chapter 8, Simon the Sorcerer. No equipping, no ministry empowerment. It doesn't exist apart from humble submission. So Peter's response to Simon was, You and your silver be cut off. You have no part or lot in the ministry of the word, because your heart is not right before God. You are filled with the venom of malice and are a slave of iniquity. God's expectation, God's expectation, God's expectation. The body be literally overflowing with humble saints submitted to God-ordained authority so that they can be empowered and equipped for the work of ministry advancing the kingdom. Verse 12 goes on to say, indeed, to build up the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not some polite form of religious democracy. It's not a social club. It's not a friendly cult where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. But isn't that what we so often turn it into? It's a theocracy run by King Jesus, and we are his spotless bride, thoroughly equipped for the spiritual warfare that's going on constantly. Do you see it? Do you see it? People like Ananias and Sapphira trying to, trying to join the church. They're trying to turn it into the coolest, the latest, the hippest, the friendliest and trendiest thing. And if you don't believe me, just go and visit a singles group at a megachurch somewhere, because that's what it's all about. 
people looking to dabble, people like the Hellenistic Jews in Acts chapter 6 who turned it into about being served rather than serving. So a complaint arose. Of course it did. They always do and they always will. People like Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8. People who want the benefits, the promises. They want the positions and the power, authority and autonomy, just not humility, right? Just not the repentance, just not the relationship. But that's not us. It can't be. We died to sin. How can we walk in it any longer? We're born again, walking in newness of life, life that's found exclusively in the body. God's expectation, God's expectation is for humble saints, empowered, equipped for ministry, advancing the kingdom, building up the body. And in verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith, indeed, into intimacy with the Son of God, maturing into the full, full measure of the stature of Christ. God's expectation isn't to create a bunch of super knowledgeable, Bible trivia, freelancing rock stars. Those are the lukewarm ones that in Revelation, he says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. If what we're doing isn't leading to and reinforcing unity and maturity in the body, then what are we doing? Whatever it is, whatever we think we're producing, whatever we've convinced ourselves is a yield of good grapes, it turns out to be worthless in God's eyes. Worthless. And it amounts to nothing. We can, many churches often do, make up our own goals. How many are you running on Sunday? And that becomes our measure of success, right? Man, I'm telling you, sanctuary was full. How was church on Sunday? How was worship? How am I supposed to know? It's for him. See, if we can answer that question, how was worship? How was church? How was the message? Oh, it was good. Yeah. Pastor Kevin kept it short. He was funny. It was entertaining. I laughed a little. I cried a little. It became a part of me. But did it actually transform your life? We can make up our own goals, baptisms, projects, programs, etc. We can cross over land and sea, right? To produce a single convert, just like the Pharisees did. And then we can hear Jesus say, woe to you. Woe to you. You've just made them twice the child of hell that you are. God's expectation is for a body that's equipped and built for battle, overflowing with humble, eager saints, empowered, equipped for ministry, measured by not our ideas, our standards, but unity and maturity in Christ. Then, King Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In the light of God's expectations, in the light of Christ's imminent return, do you know what that means? It means he could come back at any time. Are you ready? What if he came back tonight? What if he came back this afternoon? Jesus, I thought I had more time. I didn't realize that 
when you were using Pastor Kevin all this time to try to preach to me and correct me, I didn't realize that you were coming today. He told us, like a thief in the night, he's not coming again to bear sin, is he? Peter said he's not. He's not coming back a second time to bear sin. He's coming back for those who are eagerly waiting for him. Do you know what that looks like? It looks like the bride in the body equipped for battle, advancing the kingdom. So it's time to stop making it about us. It's time to stop making it about personal professions and personal salvation. And it's time to start making it about him and his kingdom. It's time to graduate from spiritual milk and move on to solid food. It's time to stop complaining about our expectations not being met. And it's time to start submitting. It's time to stop consuming and start contributing lavishly, extravagantly from our first fruits, our best stuff for God. It's time to stop rationalizing and time to surrender, abandon unto Yahweh, simple obedience with all our heart and all our ways submitted to him. It's time to stop being fair-weather fans of King Jesus and start measuring up to King Jesus, desperately dependent, able to do nothing on our own, visionary, only able to do what we see the Father doing, empowered for ministry, focused exclusively on the Father's will. It's time to throw out our expectations, isn't it? And focus on Him and His for the bride and the body. And if we did that, as Paul said, thoroughly examining ourselves, wouldn't Christ truly be found in us? Wouldn't He? And then we'd have no fear And there would be zero chance of us being found counterfeit. King Jesus, he is the ultimate game changer. He changed the what. We're no longer slaves to sin. Why walk in it any longer? We now have the opportunity to walk in newness of life. King Jesus changed the where. No longer mavericks, rebels, flying solo as independent Christian contractors doing our own thing, but members of the church, his bride and body. King Jesus, the ultimate game changer, changed the how. We no longer walk by sight or by reason or logic, but by faith in the Son of God who loved us, who loved us while we were yet sinners. And gave himself for us. King Jesus changed the why. We live for you, Lord. Not to earn our salvation, but because you, King Jesus, you alone are worthy. Because you were slain. Because with your blood, you purchased us from the ends of the earth. As we started today, I asked you to write down some expectations We all probably came in today with a whole bunch of our own stuff, our own problems, maybe even our own solutions, our own ideas, our own expectations. 
maybe even some that we're not even aware of, the most dangerous kind. So in closing, I'd like to ask you to do the same thing, but this time with a little twist. This time, write down his expectations for you, for us, as your spiritual act of worship, your response and obedience. Let's leave today having cast our crowns at the feet of Jesus. Let's depart in humility because that's what the bride does, submitting to him with all our heart and all our ways, with God's, Christ's expectations at the forefront, walking in newness of life in the body by faith in the Son of God because King Jesus alone is worthy. King Jesus, the ultimate game changer. And so the question is, in light of that, how do we respond? Everything changes. I'm captivated. I'll never be the same with just one look. Everything changes. I'm captivated. I'll never be the same. One thing I desire, only this I seek, is to dwell, dwell, dwell here forever. This will be my posture. Laying at your feet Just to dwell, dwell, dwell Here forever Dearest Father Closest friend Most beautiful Most beautiful